Hello, welcome back to the Boy and Island podcast. I am your host, Andrew Hurst. This is part two of episode two from Sorcery to Utility. This is the Thanksgiving edition. Welcome. Should we do a toast? You should. Yeah. I, I need something to toast. I'll take that glass of water right there. Well, let me open the convert. You don't have to. I love the convert. It's probably cold enough now. Who's going to make the toast? I love fruit punch. I like toast. I'll make the toast <laughs> to family, having everybody close by. Lovely, lovely. Yeah. And, okay. And to mom still yeah. making the turkey. Oh, yeah. yeah. Here, here. And, to the fruit and if I properly ruin everything this year, then I may never have to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> right. I can officially That's take it plan. off your plate. Yeah. Well, Shona said when we woke up this morning, why don't we have it at our place? And I was like, do you really mean that? And she was like, no, I don't. <laughs> but all jokes aside, when I woke up this Thanksgiving morning of 2021, I was so happy to get two text messages from two very special people. One was from my good friend Ian, who I had just worked with for a stretch of trucking jobs out on the road in the mean streets of New York City, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. I would do the driving and he did the navigating. His text said, Happy Thanksgiving. I'm happy for you this year. It was so special to get this message from him because he's the kind of unique person that comes into your life and you just can't imagine them not being around for the duration. It's great to know that he appreciates me because I feel exactly the same way about him. So here's to you, Ian. The other text was from my old football teammate, Mike Karate. Now, he was a huge star on our Middletown High School Raider team of 1992, breaking all-time rushing records, the super stud running back. I felt lucky to just be on the field with him and other guys like him. His text said, Happy Thanksgiving, man. I've been thinking of you and hope you and your family are doing well. Our oldest son, Vinny, loves art and is majoring in it next year in college. Well, you go, Vinny. I'm so happy to hear that, and what a treat it was to hear from Big Mike. His text felt like one of his nearly bone-crushing but sweet bear hugs that smother you with his ecstatic warmth. And although I held my own on that Blue Raider 1992 football team, I'm reminded also of how good players like myself and legendary players like him are equally important when everyone comes together to make a team great, there truly are no unimportant players. This is a big uh, theme of this episode, is what brings people together and under what circumstances. It's good to reflect on that on a day like Thanksgiving. Now, Mike's mother, Joyce Karate, and of course my father, James Hurst, were both members of PAIN, or People Against Nuclear Energy, the grassroots organization formed in Middletown, PA to oppose Three Mile Island. I hope to have Joyce on the podcast sometime soon. Stay tuned for much, much more on this topic. I am so thankful that my family bond has never faltered and that I've always had a place to call home 
and that I was always welcome no matter what version of myself that I was presenting to my family. The door was always open for me, and I am so thankful for that. And it's a big part of my personality, and I just feel so thankful. What are you going to say, Mom? I just wanted to say what I'm thankful for. You don't, you, you don't have to do it if you don't want to, but I'm thankful for these two little guys with all their talents, and then I get to watch. And all their hair. I get to watch all the things that they're so good at doing and like, the future like things that they might want to do. Yeah. I am thankful that I have a honey badger in this room. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that? Who's the honey badger? I said every time he comes, he has a different color hair. Eli, are you thankful for nothing? What are, what are you? Oh, I'm thankful that dirt bikes exist. <laughs> I'm thankful for my family. Oh. I am thankful that I have a dad that plays guitar. Oh. True. Uh, I'm thankful that I have a dad that plays drums and was in a lot of bands. <laughs> These are recordings from this year's Thanksgiving dinner. Those are my nephews, Eli and Leo. They're 10 years old and 9 years old. And they are hilarious. And yeah, they call me Honey Badger. I cut off all my hair and I guess they think I look like a Honey Badger. So, <laughs> I guess I guess, I guess it is what it is. And... We had, had dinner with my dad, Jim, and my mom, Ann, my sister, Lee, and my wife, Shona, as well. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. I want to talk to you about two photographs of the faces of two different men. Both of these men played central roles in two of the greatest discovery the world has ever witnessed. Both men truly look like they have actually seen a ghost. The man on the left is Howard Carter, the British archaeologist famous for leading the team that discovered and unearthed the tomb of Tutankhamun in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt in 1922. Now, I'm mostly just focusing on his facial expressions, but if we zoom out, we can consider the context of the photograph of Carter. To his left is the 5th Earl of Carnarvon, or Lord Carnarvon, his patron, who funded the excavation. And he's peering into the seemingly vacuous darkness through a partially removed mud brick wall into the tomb. Carter has turned to face the camera of his archivist and principal photographer, Harry Burton, who we have to thank for the wonderful photographs that document the excavation neatly cropped and parted head of dark hair and robustly mustachioed upper lip frames a face tattooed with an expression of absolute astonishment, suggesting that he has witnessed the workings of supernatural beings. It also looks as if he may have unwittingly deposited an artifact of his own making in his underpants. Where he has just laid his eyes upon a tomb sealed from view for 3,000 years that will be filled with priceless artifacts, so splendorous that it will be considered the greatest archaeological discovery of all time. Now the man on the right is the American theoretical physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer. 
who was the director of the Manhattan Project, which led to the creation and implementation of the atomic bomb. Oppenheimer's almond-shaped, almost alien-like face is pinched with an otherworldly gaze that seems to inhabit a territory beyond anguish. His intensely fixed, unwavering eyes seal holes clear through the camera lens into an otherness that imprisons him, draining out the lifeblood in his soul, drip by drip. The facial expressions of both of these men were chiseled by their glimpse into hitherto uncharted territories of the human psyche. Howard Carter's expression is somewhat governed by a sense of relief and exasperation after some eight long years of searching the desert dust of Egypt with little to show for his exploits. But there is something else behind these eyes that link his look to Oppenheimer's. And that is the sense that one has knowingly trespassed into the threshold of the abyss. One in the name of archaeology and one in the name of science. But both in an unholy communion to transmutate the sacred into the profane. Who really decides the point at which the forceful unearthing of holy relics and exhumations of mummified corpses is legitimized as an archaeological effort and not simply referred to as grave robbing? And also, who determines when technological or scientific breakthroughs are to be covertly exploited or weaponized without public knowledge or consent? The expression on the faces of these two men illustrate the existential conundrum that lies at the very core of the 20th century. An age whose pleasures and terrors have cast an enduring, mad shadow over humanity forevermore. But there's more intriguing connections between Howard Carter and J. Robert Oppenheimer. Among the thousands of objects retrieved from King Tut's tomb by Carter in 1922, one object stands out, not just for its breathtaking aesthetic beauty, but for more peculiar reasons. The object is a pectoral brooch, roughly six by six inches, rimmed with pure gold and emblazoned with carnelian, lapis lazuli, calcite, turquoise, and other gemstones. Its center is a scarab beetle with the outstretched wings of a falcon. The body of the scarab is comprised of a unique pale yellow carved translucent material. For decades it was thought to be chalcedony, which is a variety of quartz, but in 1998 this material was examined closer. And with the aid of a 10th century map of the Egyptian desert, scholars determined that the material was actually an extremely rare type of glass only found in an extremely remote area in the southwestern part of the Sahara Desert. After much speculation and examination of the glass, it was determined that it was created by the aerial burst from an exploding asteroid some 30 million years prior that superheated the desert sand with some 1800 degrees of extreme heat. The only other glass known to have similar characteristics was found in the desert in Los Alamos, New Mexico. This was the site of the Trinity Test, where on July 16, 1945, the first atomic bomb was tested under the supervision of J. Robert Oppenheimer, scalding the desert sand into a carpet of eerie green glass. In the last episode of the podcast, we landed on the florid doorstep of the 20th century. 
The first decade of the 1900s saw the world have its rainy seeds sown by the industrial and scientific revolutions give birth to a Europe flush with modernism's leading artistic lights, and a United States of America emboldened by its industrial might and manufacturing swagger. But the orgy of optimism and delight would be rendered flaccid by two pivotal events that would split the 20th century into distinct halves. In August of 1914, the first line was drawn in the sand, and World War I began. It was only a matter of time that the complex multitude of tight ropes that formed the latticework of international trade routes responsible for the dissemination of unprecedented varieties of luxury import and export goods by rail and by sea will be pulled taut to the point of snapping as the world's most powerful nations jealously guarded their gilded strands of the spiderweb of global influence. For what initially seemed like a geyser spewing forth optimism and enterprise, this new century plunged suddenly headlong into a warped chasm of depravity so wretched that humanity withered at the sight of what it allowed itself to become. The titanic infrastructure that provided the exoskeleton of the modern age would also provide its instruments for destruction and annihilation. This was the first war fought on an industrial scale this was total war, and no one was exempt from its horrors. World War I was the first war to be captured extensively by motion picture film, thus ensuring it an indelible and gruesome immortality. Its savage content exemplifying humankind's grimmest capabilities that would also serve as a perverse challenge to future war efforts to outdo its bombastic theater of cruelty fixed within its frames. 
like an insect encased in the amber of cellulose, an emulsion trapped in a purgatory of meaning, reborn now as spectacle, destined to sleepwalk amongst the other peddlers at Vanity's doorstep, alongside Elvis's 65 comeback show, the falling of the Twin Towers, Janet Jackson's Nip Slip, Where's the Beef, and the Zapruder film, subject to the fickle whimsy of human history. Though initially determined to remain on the sidelines, the United States had no choice but to join the Allies, officially entering the war in April of 1917. Now, no one was spared from the immense scope of this global conflict. Even those who survived were irreparably traumatized by their experiences. This war introduced an array of terrifying new weapons and military strategies that promised obliteration from every angle. Machine guns, submarines, tanks, and a variety of poison gases were among the grisly implements responsible for previously unseen physical injuries and psychological damage to countless soldiers. Many spent their days hunkered down in the unimaginable squalor of trench warfare, pummeled by the incessant onslaught of artillery bombardment. In addition, acute psychiatric effects on soldiers manifested themselves in what was referred to as shell shock, or bullet wind, wherein the war's sadistic barrage of the senses produced uncontrollable spasms, stammering speech, and a fixed, dazed expression. Having seen enough senseless suffering and loss, an eclectic network of trans-European avant-garde artists channeled their disgust into an artistic movement called Dada. Formed in Zurich in 1916, the name is a French slang for hobby horse was chosen random but perfectly suited their agenda of aesthetic revolt aiming to eliminate any and all ties to the culture and society that facilitated these atrocities ladies and gentlemen Sedazasofa speaks some historical poems phonetic from 1918 no moon on a pool. It's so so. Kili 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 koreom. Da do do da. Iri da don't. Ba 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 ba. Para 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 pa da da ba 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 ba. Fums ba ba da. This is an example of phonetic poetry with Hugo Ball, Kurt Schwitters, Tristan Zara, and Raoul Hausman as some of its key practitioners. This signals a desire to return language to its most primal form, where instinct usurps meaning. For now, meaning, in its prior conventional state, was placed on the chopping block. Marcel Duchamp pioneered the ready-made, which proposed that new thoughts could be applied to pre-existing objects, where urinals, snow shovels, and bottle racks were rechristened as artworks in themselves, calling into question the whole system of cultural production. 
This is Dada's enduring masterstroke, that even within this seemingly indifferent and ironic approach to the art object, the creative act is still firmly in the hands of the artist. It is nothing less than a complete reprogramming of pre-existing aesthetic values, where the streamlined commodities of everyday mass-produced objects were untethered from their utilitarian function and reassigned as art objects in themselves despite their inherent lack of the implied scarcity and exclusivity, previously reserved only for quote-unquote high art. The spirit of Dada has had a huge, sustained effect on my practice as an artist, and plays a big role in the Boy on Island project, in that, even in the face of the abject horror that these artists observed, some even on the front lines of World War I, Dada stands for me as a symbol of how inspiration can be wrenched out of the hands of despair and tragedy, which I am determined to do in regards to my experiences as a survivor of the Three Mile Island tragedy, because there's something bigger going on in here. It's right over there. Come with me, I'll show you. In the next episode, I'll cover the conclusion of World War I and the cultural spiritual and psychological shifts leading to World War II, where we'll take a gigantic step forward towards answering the question, how did Three Mile Island nuclear power plant wind up in my backyard? You don't want to miss it. A big thanks to you for listening to this episode. Please tell a friend, leave a review, or get more information on this project at boyandisland.com. The show is written and produced by me, Andrew Hurst. And I also created the music you've heard here. You can find out more at hurstmusic.bandcamp.com. Thanks again. See you soon.